Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I want to thank you again today for joining us on the program. I I trust that you have been blessed by the series we've been sharing. We've been in the last three weeks uh, dealing with a uh, the church at Thyatira. We've been looking at the book of Revelation from a redemptive viewpoint. And uh, the main thought that we've been sharing is that the book of Revelation, uh, when its first chapter says these things are about to shortly come to pass, and John was received a revelation that he was told to send to the seven churches that were in Asia. Uh, These seven churches were really seven churches that were really in Asia at probably one of the most pivotal times in human history because they are at the transition where they are moving from one covenant to another covenant. They are moving from law to grace. And the message to these churches is one of repentance, which is the Greek word metanoia. It means to change the way you think. Uh, I believe that that, that, that the message was very relevant to these early churches who were in Asia because God was saying to them, if you will shift the way you think, uh, these are, are, are the paradigm shifts that are going to produce the kingdom and they're what's going to produce for you uh, the rewards that are promised to the overcomer. Uh, we're going to come back here and talk about the church at Thyatira because I believe it is one of the uh, uh, churches that have uh, such a relevance to where we're at. It really is a tragedy to me that here we are 2,000 years into the new covenant and we really are having to deal with paradigm shifts from old covenant thinking because at best the church in America is still a mixture of two covenants. I want to, uh, and I want to read this text, and then we'll kind of uh, jump in here and try to uh, maybe conclude this one this week. If not, we'll go into next week to try to conclude the series on Thyatira. But it says, under the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these things: saith the Son of God, who has eyes like unto a flame of fire; his feet are like fine brass. I know your works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works, the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things offered unto idols, sacrificed unto idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he that searches the reins of the hearts, and will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not known this doctrine, and which have not known the depth of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden other than that, that you hold fast to that which you have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of potter shall be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear uh, what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we've already dealt with in the beginning of this, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass. Uh, what that simply talked about is uh, this, this church, Thyatira, its name literally means the incense of suffering. And so uh, what the uh, last three weeks we've talked about is how that Jesus Christ, His finished work, was the incense that was offered to God as a sweet-smelling savor. Christ, according to Ephesians, was offered as a sweet-smelling sacrifice and savor unto God. I would to God sometimes that we could smell 
the same savor that God smelled. Because if we really had a revelation of what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and His suffering exacted for us, we would not continue to have the mixture uh, of some of the stuff that's going on in here. Matter of fact, it would bring us up out of the tribulation that's really a result of the bed we've made. My mom used to say, if you make your bed, you lay in it. And that's really the truth is sometimes the bed of tribulation that we lay in is one of our own making. And it's a result of wrong thinking and wrong believing that produces wrong living and then it produces wrong results. But one of the main things he says here is that Jezebel, he said, you know, once he began to admire them for their faith and their charity and their works, their, faith, their works literally that flowed from their faith and from their love. Uh, we shared with you in one of the prior segments how that we're certainly not against works, but we don't believe it's works that save us, nor is it works that give us favor with God. Grace is the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God. But I promise you that what you believe you will act on. And then when you really fall in love with Jesus, there will be some works that flow out of your relationship with Him and be greater than they were in the beginning. As a matter of fact, I really believe that as we have stayed the course, and preach the gospel of grace for a number of years, I'm seeing people fall in love with Jesus all over again and their lives are truly being transformed and what they are doing and the works that they are doing is not trying to, to get God's favor but because they've already, God's favor, they've already got God's favor and they are not works uh, that are trying to be performance based but there are works that really flow from faith. And that's what James said. He said, you know what? Uh, if you show me your, your faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, what I really believe, I'm going to act on. If I believe I'm righteous, I'm going to act like I'm righteous. And so, uh, you know, I believe that we're at the stages where people are becoming what I call believers. We've set them up for so much failure uh, because we've kept them in the mixture of two covenants. As I thought about Jezebel, there's so many things that I could say about her, and it probably will be somewhat what we get into this particular segment. But she calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches her servants to commit fornication, to eat things offered unto idols. And he said, I'm going to cast her into a bed of tribulation, and those that commit adultery with her into uh, great tribulation, except she changes the way she thinks, or she repents. Now, when I think about fornication and adultery, what I think about is the mixture of two covenants. And you know, we've done some things in the past, but uh, out of Romans the seventh chapter, but Romans the seventh chapter says, uh, it says, uh, wherefore my brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath the husband is bound, the law, bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But the husband be dead, she is freed from the law uh, so that she is no adulteress though she be married to another man. And then verse 4 tells us that, Wherefore, my brethren, I speak... To, well, let me, just, let me just read it because I, I'm not doing it justice here uh, by trying to quote it. But the seventh chapter of Romans says, uh, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which hath the husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, this is, this is the key verse in this. 
you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So it tells you that the second man in Romans 7, the second husband, is him who was raised from the dead, that we should be married to another. When I think about Jezebel and seducing you to commit fornication, what that says to me is she is trying to keep you bound to two covenants and to two men. Now from my viewpoint, there has only, from not mine, but from God's viewpoint, there has only ever been two men in the earth. I wrote a book called God's Beauty and the Beast that's available on our website, or you call that number on the screen. And it really deals with these two men in the earth. From God's viewpoint, there's only ever been two men in the earth. The first man was out of the earth, and he was earthy, and the second man was the Lord from heaven. When I read Romans 7, it says that the law kept us bound, kept the woman bound to her husband as long as he was alive. And I've said things like this, and I'm going to say it again. The old covenant was written to the old man to try to get him to behave. The old covenant keeps you bound to your old, can I say it like this, your old husband, Adam. You were married to literally one who would produce death in you. Uh, the new covenant is your marriage certificate that gets you married to Christ. Now, Romans 7 verse 4 said that you should be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead. That tells me that we should be married to a second husband. Now what it's simply saying in Romans 7 is, if you are married to your second husband, Christ, and your first husband, Adam, is still alive, that makes you and Christ an, an, an adulterer, because it's a mixture of two covenants. Jesus must know something uh, that you may not have a revelation of, or he would have never married you. He must know that your first husband, Adam, is dead. As a matter of fact, if you read Romans chapter 6, it tells you how he got dead. That you are dead and reckon yourself to be dead, indeed uh, to sin, and alive to God. We, our old man, Adam, is not dying. He is dead. One of the things that you see uh, about Jezebel, even over in the, uh, where uh, there is a showdown between the prophets of Baal and Elijah the prophet, is that the prophets of Baal, they get their sacrifices, they, they build, you know, their altars, and they begin to cut themselves, and they begin to beat themselves, and they begin to chant, and they begin to do everything they can. They're calling out to Baal, and they can't seem to get Baal to do anything. It reminds me of religion, folks. A lot of times we thought we could get God to move by cutting ourselves, by beating ourselves, that the more we suffer, that the more God's going to move. I'm going to tell you, that's one of the things he's telling Thyatira to repent of. The incense of his suffering is when you get a revelation of Jesus' suffering, you're going to realize that's the basis upon which God will move and nothing other than that. As a matter of fact, the Bible said they cut themselves, they beat themselves, they, they, they went through all this rigmarole of, 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 of chanting. The Bible said they, they screamed, they hollered until literally they were wore out. But at the time, I love this, but at the time 
of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet stands up and he says, If God be God, let him answer by fire. And fire came down from heaven at the time of the evening sacrifice and consumed the sacrifice. It licked up the water. It burnt the green wood. It consumed the sacrifice. I want you to know that Jesus hung on Calvary's cross at the exact moment of the time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah called down fire from heaven. I, I want you to know, I don't think it's an accident. Even when Jesus was on the cross in Matthew 27, the latter part of the chapter says, he reared back and said, Elo, Elo, Sabachthani. And the people that stood by said, he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will come. Now I realize Jesus was said, Elo, Elo, Sabachthani. But see, the people were thinking, he's calling for Elijah. Now I think it's interesting to note that. Because Elijah, clear back hundreds of years before that, at that very same exact moment, said, if God is God, let him come down and consume this sacrifice. Can I tell you that Jesus was that sacrifice and that he was the evening sacrifice? And can I tell you that you don't have to cut yourself, you don't have to beat yourself, you don't have to go through all kinds of religious calisthenics to get God to move? I believe that's one of the mistakes that Jezebel is teaching the church is a false sense of of judgment. I could take you on over into the book of Revelation a little bit further. There's another woman over there called a harlot, which I see a connection between Babylon, the harlot, Jezebel. It's all the same spirit. But Babylon says this. This is what great Babylon says. She says, I set a queen and will see no sorrow. She says, uh, uh, she says I set as a queen and am not a widow and I will see no sorrow. And so she gives to them a cup of abomination, and she gives them a cup of suffering that all nations drink and commit adultery with her. What I begin to see was that the reason this, the whole seduction and deception of both Jezebel and of the harlot Babylon, later in the book of Revelation is, she says, I set as a queen and I am not a widow. In other words, she said, I refuse to reckon the death of my first husband, Adam. I am not a widow. And because she does not have a revelation that her first husband, Adam, is dead, she gives them a cup of abomination, and I believe it's a cup of suffering. Can I tell you that that's what he's telling us to repent of here, is that your first husband, Adam, is dead, and that the incense of his suffering is what redeemed you from that, and that you no longer are torn between two lovers with one foot in Adam and one foot in Christ, and one foot in the Old Covenant and one foot in the New Covenant. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a mixture. It's what the Scripture calls in Romans 7, spiritual adultery. And what he goes on to say is, is I'm going to cast her into tribulation and then to commit adultery with her and then I'm going to kill her children with death. Now listen to what I'm saying about this. I don't think that simply means God is going to get people and take their kids and single them out and kill them. I think what he's simply saying is everything that you have produced out of an illicit relationship with Adam has to be put to death. In other words, said another way, if what Romans 7 verse 4 says, it says that we should be married to another, even to him who's raised from the dead, so that we can bring forth fruit unto God. Our offspring and what flows out of our union with Christ is his seed, his life, his offspring. What has flowed out of our lives in our union with Adam and with the old covenant 
has really been the cause of all of our problems, all of our tribulation, and all of our suffering. And it is in that tribulation that he cast her into a bed to get her to repent. I don't know about you, but when you've had enough suffering, you'll figure out a way, you, you'll figure out a way to get out of this tribulation. You, you'll figure out at some point that you've listened to the wrong prophets. The prophets of Baal are trying to tell you to cut yourself and to beat yourself, and one of these days you'll get God to move. It's kind of like, to me, some of the concepts even about revival today. And listen, please don't, don't shut me off. The word revival is not even in the New Testament. Now, I'm not against or opposed to the move of the Spirit of God, but the closest thing that's really to that is in the book of Acts, where he simply says this. He says, if you will repent, then times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. And I'm convinced that what we've tried to do is get revival from getting people to stand around altars and reconfess their sin that's all been dealt with. And we stand around altars trying to browbeat ourselves, almost like the prophets of Baal, wondering why we can't get God to move. And we have cried until we've lost our voices and marched around trying to get God to move on the basis of who we are. Let me suggest to you that our repentance needs to shift from our sin consciousness to repenting to what Jesus already did. And when we get a time of refreshing, once we repent, in other words, once we have a mind shift, once we change, I believe the thing that's going to birth real revival or refreshing, and again, I'm not against the word revival or a move of the Spirit, but see, the, the, uh, the whole concept here is what really has produced any move of God in the past has been a fresh revelation or a paradigm shift. And when that paradigm shift comes, whether it was a revelation that God wanted to pour out the Holy Spirit during the turn of the century at Azusa Street, it was that fresh revelation that produced revival. I, I submit to you that one of the things we must back away from to see God really move, and one of the things he's, uh, some of the children he's killing with death are not individuals, but they are mindsets, they are concepts, they are ideas that have been birthed out of wrong teaching from Jezebel. We've received concepts that have become conception, and then we've given birth to Adam's babies, if I could say it like that. And the reality of it is, is that in this season, I believe we are coming to a place where people are sick and tired of being sick and tired of a gospel that demands everything but absolutely delivers nothing. I believe we are setting, I feel the Holy Spirit, I believe we're setting on the threshold of one of the greatest manifestations of the power of God to a generation who are absolutely repenting, but they're changing their minds in a different dimension, and they are learning how to rule these nations with a rod of iron. And some of these nations that are being ruled with a rod of iron are condemnation, they are imagination, they are the nations that set themselves between our ears. And the moment we can cast down those imaginations and every idol that Jezebel has set up in our mind that has seduced us to leave our inheritance, I'm telling you, I believe God is bringing those things down. I don't think it's an accident that after Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal that there are 70 sons of Ahab that are taken out and destroyed. In other words, everything that's flowed from a Jezebel spirit, everything that seduces you. One of the reasons I believe God sent Elijah into, uh, to speak over the prophet, uh, uh, spoke to Jezebel and to Ahab, and he said the dogs are going to eat Jezebel, and there's the birds and the dogs are going to eat Jezebel. But one of the reasons was because Jezebel literally set Naboth, Naboth up 
to kill him and to destroy him so she could rob him of his vineyard and his inheritance and give it to Ahab, which was illegal. It was his father's inheritance. Can I tell you, a religious system has robbed people of their father's inheritance and has set us up falsely to be killed by a system that sacrificed us on its altars so that they could rob us of our inheritance. But I refuse to give up my vineyard. When I think about a vineyard, I think about that which produces the wine of the Spirit. I refuse to cut myself or believe I've got to be like the prophets of Baal, that I've got to suffer and cut myself to try to get God to move, or I've got to do all these religious calisthenics, and I don't want to get into details or somebody will get mad at me. But we've thought that the move of God and the outpouring of the presence of God was going to come because if we suffer enough and if we can confess our sin enough and if we can repent enough, uh, you know, uh, and, and I would say this, we've even used the scripture out of Chronicles where it says, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and I'll come and heal their land. First of all, I want to say that's an old covenant concept, but even to look at this and to say to them, uh, uh, if you, he, says, uh, he says to them, then will I hear from heaven. If you will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven. I heard the Lord say to me 20 years ago, I'm desperate. This is God speaking to me. He said, I'm desperate to hear from heaven. I said, Lord, what are you saying? He said, I want somebody to talk to me from heaven and not from the realm of the earth or from the dust. I said, what are you saying, Lord? He said, every time you come to me, you're telling me who you are in Adam, what your problems are, and your sins, and you're confessing all of these things, and your sins and iniquities, I told you I will remember no more. Now, I'm not saying that there's not time for repentance. I'm not saying that there's not time to ask God for forgiveness. But I am saying that one of the things that we need to repent to is not constantly focusing on who we are in the realm of the earth, but who we are in the heavens. And when we get to speak to God, from the heavenlies. When God hears us declare some things from the heavens, God said, then will I hear from heaven. I like how Ephesians 1, 3 said, and blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's one of my favorite scriptures. The word places in that text is not in the original language. It literally reads, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly Christ Jesus. So the heavenly is not a location, it's in Christ Jesus. That's the location it is. But I like the word blessings there, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. The word blessings there is the Greek word eulogia. It is our English word eulogy. And a eulogy is something you say over somebody that's dead. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you this morning. You're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And the moment God made a pronunciation of death over who you were in Adam, He placed you right then in the heavenly Christ so that you are already where a lot of folks are dying to be. You are in the heavenly. You are in Christ. And what God wants is somebody to talk to Him from heaven. And if you will speak out of your union with Christ and declarations of authority and dominion, you'll begin to exercise a dominion from a place where, hallelujah, uh, you flow from this incredible posture where you will have power over the nations to rule them with a rod of iron. I believe that there's a dominion mandate on the people of God. I believe there's a dominion, dominion mandate that God was trying to restore to the church clear back when he's talking to Thyatira. But I believe we're living in a great day now where God is restoring that dominion once again to people who are speaking from the heavenly Christ.
We're not, we're not allowing the teachings of Jezebel to rob us of our inheritance. We're not letting her prophets make us stand around altars and cut ourselves until we bleed, until our voices are shot from screaming, trying to get God to move. We rear back and put our focus on the evening sacrifice of what Jesus did on Calvary's tree. And because of what Jesus did on Calvary's tree, I have an expectation of faith. I'm, I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm hearing uh, the Lord begin to destroy some of the offspring that we've had from false concepts. When he says, I'm going to kill her children with death, I believe there are some dying concepts. There are some dying things that we've, we've allowed Jezebel to teach us. And most of it has to do with suffering. But as we come back to the revelation of what this church means, the incense of affliction, and the incense of the affliction, according to Ephesians 5, is that he has offered himself as a sweet-smelling savor to God. He was the evening sacrifice. And as a result, my faith comes new. There's works that flow from my faith. There's works that flow from my charity, from my love for Him, and from my works for Him. There's some real fruit coming, and that's not what God's trying to destroy. He's destroying everything that's flowed out of a religious thing. And you know what? It's not so much even, I don't think, sometimes that God's destroying it. It's that we've built this bed. We ourselves have made this bed of tribulation. Because what we believe matters, folks. In other words, if we don't believe that Jesus redeemed us from suffering, we're going to suffer. If we don't believe Jesus died and secured for us healing, we're going to continue to be sick. If we don't believe we've been redeemed from sin, sickness, poverty, and death, and we allow the Jezebel teachings to seduce us out of our inheritance, we're going to suffer with sin, sickness, poverty, and death. But I came to tell you this morning that you've got power over the nations because of what he did as a vessel of a potter shall he break them in pieces. I'm casting down some imaginations. I'm casting down some condemnation. And I'm standing in a season where I have repented and overcome. Hallelujah. And I've, 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 I'm going to simply hold fast and keep his works. I think that's powerful that it points out. I'm going to keep his works, what he did unto the end. That's what I want to put my emphasis on is keeping His works and what He's done, and those are the ones that get power over the nations. Man, I'm going to tell you what, the more I study the personal work of Jesus Christ, what He's done, what He's redeemed us from, no wonder this book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ and Unveiling Him. Apocalypse is not uncovering bugs as big as Volkswagens. It's not uncovering world events. It's uncovering Jesus Christ. It's removing the veil of the law away so we can see what's already ours. I trust you've enjoyed this. Tune in again next week as we continue to develop uh, this book of Revelation. Take a moment to call that number on the screen. Uh, sow a seed into the ministry. It is your faithful support and partnership that helps us take the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace around the world. We need your partnership. Uh, we, you know, we, we, we encourage you to call. We encourage you to write to us. Uh, even if you can't give, uh, you can send us an email. Uh, we appreciate that. But when you can uh, help us, it helps us take the gospel around the world. Thank you for joining in. Tell your friends about us. God bless you. This series is about living life in the context of sonship. Jesus is recognized as a son in the River Jordan by his father. Flowing from his identity as a son, Jesus comes up out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit with incredible demonstrations of the miraculous. He introduces to his followers the new covenant idea that God is more than just an austere judge. He is our father. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Let us awaken to our true identity and set creation free.